Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. We are um, very excited about uh, reprogramming pluripotent stem cells. Uh, we have three main interests uh, in the lab. Um, one is mechanisms, as Evan um, alluded to, and uh, decided to tell you more about that. But we also are very interested in um, developing uh, human cell models to study diseases, in particular uh, neuropsychiatric diseases. But we also actually have an Alzheimer's project. And also we'd like to um, um, think into the direction of actual regenerative medicine and using reprogrammed cells for a um, direct uh, therapeutic implication. So, um, as I said, we are generally, generally interested in the lab in um, the molecular mechanisms that uh, define cell identity, and in particular, um, the formation of neurons. When you think about it, it's really the chromatin configuration and a specific set of transcription factors that are being expressed in each cell that we think are the molecular substrate of cellulage identity. Just put this slide up here. Again, as Californians, you know this gentleman. Uh, just to remind everybody that uh, the epig epigenetic information is really, really important. Um, you can have the exact same set of genes and look very different. So the same should be true for cells. So when we think about when a neuron is formed, there are really three cell biological steps that these cells typically have to undergo. First, somehow the uh, lineage has to be induced. Then typically cells um, have to mature. And once the neurons are made, there must also be mechanisms in place that um, guarantee the stability of the acquired cell identity. So let me start with um, the question of how are neurons actually induced. And following the famous dictum by Richard Feynman, what I cannot uh, create, I do not understand, we set out to try to, to generate neurons from scratch. And um, we tried to convert completely unrelated dermal fibroblasts to convert directly into neurons. And this experiment worked. We found these three transcription factors, ASA1 with one leg and BRIN2, that uh, quite efficiently induced these, we call them IN cells, or induced neuronal cells. And the remarkable observation was that these cells not only looked nice and had some neuronal genes expressed, they actually had the two main functional properties of neurons, namely we were able to fire action potentials and form synaptic connections. The um, functional characterization was uh, performed in close collaboration with Tom Sudoff's lab, and we are collaborating ever since. So over the years, we have explored several donor cells and found that very similar sets of transcription factors, actually, can convert a variety of different cell types into these uh, ion cells. And I guess I'm most proud to um, be able to tell you that we also managed to convert adult human lymphocytes into these, into these neuronal cells. This was accomplished um, with the combination of these four transcription factors, uh, the three I mentioned in, um, in addition to NGN2. 
We also found a set of small molecules that uh, further improve the reprogramming process. And of course, we always make sure that these cells are functional and they can integrate into um, pre-existing neural networks and um, form synaptic connections with them. So um, let me now focus on, on more the mechanistic sites now that I've hopefully demonstrated you that it is actually possible to induce neuron, the neuronal lineage from various donor cell types. But how, how does it work? It's just a you know, small handful of transcription factors that apparently seem to be at the very top of a, of a hierarchy of a lot of you know, cell biological processes that have to happen when you convert a flat, uh, boring-looking uh, fibroblast to this elegant you know, cell of, of a functional neuron. So let me start with this factor called ASA1, which is a BHLH, a basic helix-lobelix transcription factor. Here you see the um, crystal structure modeled after MyOD, a related BHLH factor. And uh, it typically forms a heterodimer with constitutively <coughs> expressed A proteins. And as you can see, the, um, the two helixes are primarily there to um, interface between the two partnering transcription factors. And it's really the extension of one of these uh, alpha helixes that uh, creates the basic domain, which is um, binding the DNA in the major groove. So one of the first things we asked, uh, where is ace one actually landing in the fibroblast genome? So we just took mouse emery fibroblasts or MEFs, infected them with uh, the three transcription factors, and then pulled out a one with antibodies and did a chip-seq experiment to map where the binding sites are. And we got a nice list of about six or so thousand uh, sites that are significantly enriched. And the remarkable observation was that when we compared these sites to where a one is physiologically bound in neural precursor cells, and those are endogenous a one levels, uh, we see a very similar binding pattern. So that was completely unexpected because your fibroblasts are considered to be in a very different epigenetic state and you would expect that any transcription factor uh, ectopically expressed, like a neuronal transcription factor, uh, should be completely lost there, right? And, and not be able to find its proper neuronal targets. Rather, sort of, you know, uh, um, try to deal with the situation and, and find, uh, you know, some open, accessible sites in the chromatin of these fibroblasts. So that was really surprising why ACL1 would bind very similarly. Um, we, we, we first made sure that this is actually a property of ACL1 itself. It doesn't require the other two factors, so we, we infected the fibroblasts with just ACL1 alone. And again, see the very same binding pattern. So somehow ACL1 is able to do that. So we're wondering, well, there's really only two possibilities uh, how this can happen. Either these fibroblasts are somewhat weird. And all these neuronal targets are, happen to be accessible and the chromatin state is compatible with um, you know, binding of a neural transcription factor. The alternative um, hypothesis is that the, cr the chromatin is actually different than in NPCs and these neuronal targets are closed. But ace one has sort of special properties, um, properties of what we call a pioneer factor, which is the property to access closed chromatin. And to distinguish between these two possibilities, we just looked at the chromatin configuration at the ace one target sites in completely unperturbed fibroblasts. So we 
we knew, of course, where ASA1 will bind and took those sites in the genome and asked how, what's the configuration of these sites in the fibroblast before ASA1 is showing up. And what you see here in this, uh, on the left is a fair-seq analysis, which is a, a way to measure nucleosome-free regions. We see a clear depletion of this, of this signal here at the ASA1 target sites suggesting that the vast majority of, the, of these ACE1 targets are actually in a closed configuration. And we come to the same conclusion when we pull out nucleosomal DNA associated with histones by pulling out um, histones with H3 antibodies, and now we see a clear enrichment of the signal. So it's very clear. The fibroblasts are not weird. They are actually different in their epigenetic state, and the uh, ACE1 target genes uh, or, or sites are actually closed, and ACE1 is able to bind these sites regardless. And in contrast to many pioneer factors that have been described, I just showed you earlier, ACE1 is actually able to not only bind random closed targets, it's actually proper physiological um, binding sites. That's why we coined this term that, pioneer, uh, that ACE1 must be a so-called on-target pioneer factor. All right, so what about the uh, other two transcription factors? Um, we also looked at uh, BRAIN2 and its uh, binding pattern in fibroblasts, either alone or in combination with the other two transcription factors, or where BRAIN2 is bound in, in the precursor cells. And as you can see, the binding pattern is completely dependent on the circumstances, on the, on the conditions. When we do uh, like a Venn diagram overlap, there's hardly any overlap between these uh, the brain two binding sites in these three different conditions. So very unlike ACL1, brain two is highly context dependent. Um, it actually turns out that uh, the binding sites in, in MEFs, when you co-express ACL1, actually enrich for, for an ACL1 motif. And there is um, quite a number, about a quarter or so, of the sites that are um, co-occurring now with the ACE1 binding sites. So these sites don't even have a brain 2 motif, but still brain 2 is going there, suggesting that ACE1 is dragging somehow this uh, other reprogramming factor to, to this proper sites. Um, and not surprisingly now, when we look at the uh, brain 2 binding sites in either of the, these conditions, they tend to be open and accessible. So we arrive now at this um, model here, that the ACE1 target sites must be in a closed configura uh, chromatin configuration. And somehow, we have, of course, no idea yet, but somehow ACE1 finds its targets and, um, and binds the, um, the DNA and probably recruits other factors such as brain 2, but also assume chromatin remodeling complexes and, and so forth, and then opens up <coughs> these sites to activate the neuronal program. So that is, of course, a nice diagram and uh, taken from a, from a review by Kenzeret. But can we actually watch this? Can we actually see that this is happening? And to do that, we resorted to this uh, very elegant technique uh, called ATAC-seq, which was co-developed by um, uh, our close collaborator, Howard Cheng, at Stanford. And that uh, technique takes advantage of transposes um, to splice in uh, sequencing primers into accessible uh, chromatin. Because of this direct splicing of the sequencing primers, it's a very, very sensitive method. And uh, as, as you can um, imagine, uh, it's a very elegant way to uh, distinguish accessible open chromatin from closed chromatin. So we um, first asked what happens to these ACE1 target sites in the time course 
of a reprogramming. And we, we took several samples. In particular, early on, um, we uh, looked at 12 hours, 24 hours, 36 and 48, and then uh, later time points all the way to about three weeks after the conversion. And we separated the, um, the reads into long and short reads because short reads are um, obviously associated with open chromatin because transposase can access there and it produces short reads. If, if the, the transposase bumps into nucleosome, it will um, only have a chance to um, um, uh, splice in when the uh, nucleosome uh, the other side of the nucleosome and the DNA wrapped around it, of course, is resistant to it. That's why longer reads in the ataxic um, experiment produce uh, the signal associated with, with nucleosomal or with closed chromatin. So we separated for this reason these two reads. And in black, you see the, uh, the short reads, so the nucleosome-free regions, and uh, we see a very rapid induction of the signal here. So this is 12 hours after induction of mRNA of ASL1. Right? Um, uh, so we don't, uh, the protein will be even later. And we can already clearly detect um, something is happening and opening up at these ASL1 target sites. And this signal um, sort of increases over time. And when I can draw your attention to now the red signal, which is the, um, so the reads associated with nucleosomal sites, um, Maybe it's not so visible early on, but clearly by day five, we see now these two pump, bumps um, flanking the ASO1 target size, the, the E-box motif here, suggesting there is now a um, stabilization of two nucleosomes flanking this, this open region. So I was really um, amazed by this data because you literally can watch the um, conversion of the chromatin remodeling, essentially, from a more um, um, stochastically um, um, or a st stochastic um, arrangement of nucleosomes to a highly structured you know, um, chromatin configuration after ACE1 has been uh, bound down. So this was just the ASO1 target sites. What happens at the rest of the genome, and you can imagine with these genome assays, a lot is happening. We were amazed to see that thousands of sites are opening up in the first hours. And um, as you could expect from, what I, from the data I've showed you, um, the majority of the sites are actually um, opening up. And uh, most of the ASO1 target sites are found in this, in this block here. But remarkably, there's also some sites that are closing down. And there's not even an ASO1 molecule sitting there. Um, so how you know, this is regulated, we also have no idea. So let me now switch gears and tell you a little bit more about the third reprogram factor, which is called MIT-1-like. And unlike the, the other two, MIT-1-like was really not well studied. When we found it uh, to be a reprogramming factor, which is now a little while ago already, uh, there were just four PubMed entries about MIT-1-like. So what was known, though, was this beautiful expression pattern. This is just taken from, from, this, from one of these early papers, uh, which demonstrated its, um, its expression pattern. And it turns out that MIT-1-like is uh, very tightly associated with neuronal identity. With one leg is induced very rapidly after neurons are formed, right essentially after the last cell division when the neuro precursor cells are divide, dividing in the, um, in the ventricular zone and the neurons are migrating up towards the cortical plate. All the way, uh, so it stays as induced at that point and then stays on all the way through the, um, the life of the animal. There's two family members called MIT1 
sorry, the name is a little confusing, MIT1 like is the one, the gene I'm talking about, and there's the name giving family member called MIT1, uh, which uh, is also induced during uh, the formation of neurons, but it's only transiently induced um, and then turned off again in neurons, and later um, induced in OPCs, in oligonerous precursor cells again. So for the uh, OPC um, aficionados in the lab, you pro- uh, in the room, sorry, in the lab meeting, right? <laughs> um, uh, you will probably have heard of MIT1 already uh, before because it's a very prominent marker for OPCs later on. And hence, by the way, the name, myelin transcription factor. So, all a little confusing. Um, so, again, we asked where is MIT1 like going? In this fibroblast, uh, there were no anti- antibodies available, so we had to generate our own antibody, and we're um, luckily we're able to obtain pretty high quality antibodies. We were able to actually interrogate primary neurons, in this case as a fetal brain that, that we used for, for this GIPC experiment. Again, we got some nice peaks back, uh, you know, a, a motif. Remarkably, about half or so of the target sites are actually right at promoter regions, which um, facilitated our analysis quite a bit because it was quite easy now to assess, uh, to assign the target genes of the, um, the mid-one-like binding sites. And of course, we also did ChIP-seq in fibroblasts, where we expressed mid one leg alone, which is shown here in the middle, or uh, with the other two uh, transcription factors. And as you can see, again, just like for ESA1, we see that mid one leg is binding a very similar pattern. Well, I just tried to make the point earlier that um, this is something very unique and very special and not really much seen with transcription factors. Um, so we thought, oh, it's... Um, um, surprising, but maybe not so surprising that um, mid one like may also be such an amazing you know pioneer factor like ACL one. It is a very powerful reprogramming factor after all, right? So maybe it's probably it's a very high, highly selected transcription factor. It's not a random transcription factor that we just picked, um, right? So we thought, well, yeah, it's probably also a pioneer factor. So we looked at the um, chromatin configuration just like before um, at these mid one like targets now in fibroblasts, and we're completely surprised to see that. Mid one leg is not at all apparently a pioneer factor because it turns out that unlike ASA1, which is shown in this red color here, um, the mid one leg targets are actually completely open and accessible because this is an MNAs data set now here. So um, the uh, lower signal or depletion of the signal um, clearly suggests that these sites are all open and accessible. So now we were wondering. Uh, you know, how is that possible? You have this beautifully specific uh, um, transcription factor. It's only there in neurons. Um, it, it, it binds the same sites in neurons and in fibroblasts, but it's not a pioneer factor. So, you know, again, what, what's going on here? These sites are open and accessible. So it took quite a while until we managed to wrap our head around this. And the first sort of indication towards... A solution came when we looked at the transcription output of mid one leg. So um, we noticed that, uh, in particular, early on in the reprogramming, we just expressed mid one leg in these fibroblasts, that most of its target genes are actually repressed rather than activated. And that's also true and statistically significant when you take the entire list of mid one leg target genes. So it's rather a transcription repressor, it seems. But I was kind of skeptical. Because you know, these, these RNA-seq data sets, 
separate genome wide. They're like, you know, it's two days after infection. There's you know, a lot of things that can happen. Typically, there's cascades of transcription factors. So, is it really directly a um, transcription repressor? I had hard times to believe that, um, just because I thought, you know, when you when you convert a fibroblast to a neuron, this is such a dramatic cell biological change. It, it cannot be sufficient to just relieve a repressor from the program, right? You may be able to de, sort of de-repress things, but I would nev- never thought that this is enough to really induce a new lineage. So I was really skeptical, and I challenged my um, German, I must say, postdoc, who was uh, there at the time to do these experiments, Moritz Mal, uh, to come up with a functional essay. We, we need you know, better evidence for, for, for this idea. So he took apart mid one leg, very systematically, don't show all the structure function um, fun experiments, by the way, that, that led to other conclusions. But uh, suffice it to say here that he identified the uh, DNA binding domain, which, is, which are these two zinc fingers here right in the middle of mid one leg. And uh, turns out that this uncharacterized domain here is, is the most critical uh, for reprogramming. But so he had identified the DNA binding domain, which is, which is this small fragment, which alone doesn't really do anything. Um, but uh, he then fused this domain to a transcription repressor, ingrid repressor, or the VP64, a transcription activating domain. And then threw this, these constructs into our program essay, and here are the results. Uh, we measured two genes, TOG1 and tau, which are two neuronal uh, markers. And um, all these data here are normalized to um, AECL1. Um, so those are the efficiencies with, with just AECL1 alone. Uh, this is this little fragment here, uh, which, um, um, as, as I said, does, doesn't really have um, you know, much, much of an effect. This is just the, um, this is just the uh, effect of AECL1 alone compared to the, to the wild-type addition of, of, of mid one like. And now, when we look at the transcriptional uh, repressive fusion or, or the sort of the, the mid one like uh, forced transcriptional repressor um, uh, construct, we see at least for the tau marker and to some degree also for the TH1 marker a clear improvement of the uh, reprogramming over AC1 alone, uh, suggesting that repression actually helps. It's not quite as good as full length mid one like, but it's, it's clearly supports. But now look at the activating. Um, uh, version of mid one leg that completely kills the system. It's even worse than uh, AS1, the effects of AS1 alone. So I had to change my you know, opinion, and it's very clear. Uh, the main function, apparently, of mid one leg is transcriptional repression. So now when you think about it, actually it does make, or it can make, actually a lot of sense. Because when you think, what has to change when you induce uh, one lineage from an unrelated cell type. Of course, it's important to induce the target program, but somebody also has to take care of the original donor program. If you wouldn't do that, you would end up in some sort of, you know, dual hybrid cell identity, a sort of a fibro-neuronal cell, which is probably not all that useful, right? Um, so we thought, well, this is cool. A one is this, this uh, neuronal uh, pioneer effector and use the neural program. Maybe what mid one leg is doing is represses the fibroblast identity. <clears throat> so we had various um, sort of 
approaches to, to address that question and, and just pick, uh, for, for the sake of time, which is one of, of this, um, which is a gene set enrichment analysis where we essentially overlapped the mid one like targets with a fibroblast signature gene. And as you can see, the, uh, the sort of enrichment was highly significant suggesting that this is exactly what, what, what happens and that the main job of mid one leg in the reprogramming um, process is to suppress the fibroblast program. So for um, uh, the reprogramming function, we uh, realized this is a, a beautiful solution that nature found for us. So we have ac one which is a great activator and, um, and very specifically and efficiently is able to activate the neural program. And then we have mid one leg which is um, clearly able to suppress the fibroblast program. And that's probably why these two factors work so well together um, in this it is a reprogramming context. But we also asked, what could mid one leg be doing in the brain? Isn't it a little unlikely that mid one leg was just made by nature to suppress a fibroblast program. So we hypothesize, and that is shown here in this um, summary sort of uh, overview, that mid one leg is not only there to suppress a fibroblast program, but many other non-neuronal programs, including we have, we have uh, evidence, um, more specific evidence for, for, uh, for a muscle repressor, but also um, hepatocyte and keratinocyte um, uh, programs perhaps even more. So it could be that mid one like is sort of the exact opposite of a, um, of a sort of active neuronal identity factor, like, like ac one for example, would be. It, it also is a pro-neuronal factor, but it acts not by activating the neuronal program, but by silencing essentially all the remaining programs to allow factors like ASIBON to then activate the, um, the, um, the neural program. So a sort of inverted um, action to still have a net effect to being pro-neuronal. And um, yeah, so we, are really, we really like this idea because it, you know, it's a sort of a new type of function of a transcriptional repressor. Um, typically, repressors um, have been shown to rep repress specific lineages. I'm sure everybody of you have heard of the famous neuronal transcription repressor REST, which is there to essentially suppress specifically the neuronal program. And mid one is the exact opposite. Right? So it's uh, repressing anything else except the neuronal program. So we thought if this is true, you would expect that the um, REST motif is enriched in neuronal programs, uh, in, in neuronal promoters and depleted in non-neural promoters, which of course is published and we con could confirm this as a positive control. But you would also expect that mid one leg is the, the opposite. It's enriched in non-neural promoters and depleted in neural promoters. And that's exactly what, what we see. So I think quite strong evidence from just taking um, DNA sequences of the databases uh, that confirms you know, this uh, or supports um, this idea. All right, but it also has, um, I think, important implications for normal development. Because one of the strong target genes that are repressed by mid one leg is actually m many members of the notch pathway, including the downstream effector genes HES1 and HES5. And that 
could solve a conundrum that has been out there since, since quite a while. I'm sure you're all familiar with the notch pathway and its um, function as lateral inhibition during normal de- neuronal development. And what, um, what uh, sort of the hypothesis is, or the, the sort of the textbook uh, model says, is that you have a neuroprogenitor and a differentiating neuron sort of mixed in the ventricular zone. And the uh, differentiating cells, they induce AS1 at some point, um, which activates delta, which is the uh, ligand for the notch receptor on the neighboring cell, which is still the undifferentiated cell. And notch would then activate, um, transcriptionally, has, the transcription factor has one, which then in turn very effectively blocks ac one So that's a beautiful system to explain how ACE1 cannot be induced in these neuroprecursor cells and explains how um, neural precursors and uh, stem cells maintain their identity and keep um, proliferating. But it was not clear um, how these cells here can escape such a strong notch um, effect. After all, this is you know, a, a strong uh, sort of progenitor domain with probably lots of uh, you know, delta around. There's no reason to assume that just because these cells express delta, they couldn't also express the notch receptor. So, so why are these cells insensitive to the notch pathway and can still differentiate after all. And we think now with the, um, with the mid-one leg uh, link, this could sort of be the, the missing piece of this puzzle here because somehow is what is inducing mid-one leg. Um, it doesn't seem to be a direct um, a target, but it's some indirect target because we see it induced at later time points. But once it is induced, it's a very effective blocker of, of HES1 and thereby essentially shortcutting the whole system and shortcutting uh, the notch pathway, literally making these cells insensitive to, to any upstream activation of the pathway and allowing these cells to further differentiate. So we wanted to sort of verify this or take a, take a look, but this is actually happening, happening during a normal development. And um, Moritz did some in utero, in utero electroporation um, assays where he... Um, uh, electroporated uh, hairpin constructs against mid one leg to, to knock down the um, gene. And um, as you can see, um, just based on migration, so down here is the ventricular zone and up here the cortical plate, not many cells actually make it up to the, to the cortical plate when they are um, transfected with these uh, hairpin constructs suggesting that there is a differentiation block, um, and this is uh, collabor- uh, corroborated uh, by um, various immune stainings um, to demonstrate that, indeed, um, acute loss of mid one leg or reduction of mid one leg in these ventricular precursor cells um, lead to a, a deficiency in their, in their differentiation. So it seems that's what's going on in, in, in vivo during normal uh, development. All right. Um, as you can tell, we are very excited about this transition, and we, we are shooting with various methods at this, at this question. And we also did a single-cell RNA-seq uh, approach um, by um, forming an RNA-seq um, analysis of the reprogramming cells, starting from undifferentiated or uninfected fibroblasts all the way to uh, about three-week-old mature AN cells. And um, this is... Um, the, the distribution of the cells in between. Um, and uh, as you can tell, we have sort of drawn this, this uh, curved line here, which seems to be the reprogramming path. Here are the fibroblasts, those are the intermediate cells, here are the mature N cells. 
Um, and there's a lot of interesting things um, obviously happening. But what we um, in particular notice is there's two offshoots of these cells, looks like, um, from the normal uh, reprogramming path. So this offshoot here is um, interesting uh, because these cells seem to um, not really be able to go far and still have a lot of fibroblast um, features in them, perhaps are sort of on the way back to fibroblasts. And it turns out that it's exactly those cells that for some reason turn off ASO1 very rapidly. So I didn't tell you yet that the colors here indicate the levels of ASO1. And at that stage, it's mostly driven by the transgenic you know, um, expression from, from our lentiviruses. Not, not so much cont uh, contribution will stem from the endogenous ASO1. So for some reason, um, uh, these triangles here indicate day five of reprogramming, as early as day five after infection. And those are really strong, you know, dox-inducible lentiviruses. There is no ASO1 um, mRNA detectable anymore in these cells. We think it's, well, no, we actually have no idea why, why, why this is science. It's, it's, um, yeah. We know there's a lot going on on the protein, but also, as you can, can see, on, on the RNA. Uh, level and it's it's not has nothing to do with a you know the technical problem so you know GFP is highly expressed or other uh, genes so it's it's really ASO1 specific but remarkably on the RNA level um, so uh, what I was about to say earlier is we think that HES1 might play a role in, in there so but from a reprogramming point of view it's potentially a trivial explanation of why these cells you know don't reprogram and they are actually majority of the cells and that's why we end up overall in only about 20% efficiency and probably most of these 80% are explained by this phenomenon but there's also an interesting second offshoot which is a little smaller um, but it's shown here but it's it's fur, you know, it's, go, it's going further down here and as you can see the levels of ac one are still very very high so clearly not, cannot be explained by this sort of simple technical um, explanation. So when we look at these four or five cells here, we see that there is a lot of muscle genes being induced in, 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 in these cells. And um, that reminded us that ac one after all, is very closely related to this famous transcription factor called MyoD which was found in the late 80s to convert fibroblasts to neurons. So coming back to this you know, old um, uh, papers, we realized actually we used the exact same cells that MyoD was you know, discovered in. Um, and uh, we have now this really beautiful system that we uh, can start with the exact same population, uh, put MyoD in these cells and turns them into one way, that, that turns them very efficiently to, into muscle cells. Um, or we put ac one uh, uh, sequence-related BGLH factor, and we go the exact opposite direction and turn these cells into neurons. So we thought when we, perhaps we can learn something when we compare these two transcription factors a little better. So again, we um, um, first made sure that the system is working, so we infected fibroblasts with uh, AS1 or MyOD, stained for neuronal and muscle markers, and as you can see, system works as advertised, AS1 makes neurons, MyOD makes muscle cells. When we look at where ASA1 and MyoD is bound in these fibroblasts, we came to the remarkable conclusion that the binding is again very, very similar between these two factors. When you look at the motif that is preferentially enriched at these binding sites, we find the exact same type of epochs 
namely the GC type ebooks enriched in these uh, in these sites. So it looks like biochemically, or sort of sequence preference wise, these two factors are actually very very closely related. And how can you explain these two different reprogramming outcomes by having a seemingly identical binding pattern in thyroid? We just con confirm that everything is working well. And when you look at the RNA by RNA-seq, now we see, of course, dramatic differences, as you would expect. One induces a muscle program, the other factor induces a neuronal program. So we have this discrepancy between binding and transcriptional response. And took us, again, quite a long time to look at sites and sort them by various parameters and uh, see whether we can make any sense out of this. And um, finally, we uh, came to the conclusion, actually, binding is important after all, but you have to uh, sort of include a bit more quantitation and not only look qualitatively whether a factor is there or not, but also how strong the binding um, event is. And when we do that and incorporate the um, affinity, so to say, of the transcription factors into the equation, now all of a sudden things make a lot of sense. So those here are um, the, all the binding sites that are co-bound by A7 and MyOD, but sorted based on intensity, essentially. So up here, we have the sites that are preferentially bound by A7 and to a lesser degree by MyOD. In the middle, the ones which are co-bound similarly, and down here, the MyOD-enriched sites. And now, when we look at the um, changes um, on, the, on the chromatin, for example, when we look at an enhancer mark, H3K27 acetyl mark, and now these A7 preferred site, preferably bound sites, they open up. They are getting acetylated when you express A7 and not when we express MyOD. And the opposite is true for, for MyOD. So the MyOD enriched sites are the ones that are actually responding, so to say, to MyOD, but not to A7. And we see a very similar pattern when we uh, use ATAC-seq uh, here, and even to some degree also the expression. But it's, of course, the target genes are hard to know for sure because the binding events oftentimes happen in very distal elements, so it's not always easy to identify the exact target genes that are regulated. But even on the RNA uh, level, we see a, a, you know, a, a, um, um, enrichment of these sites. So that's you know, sort of um, satisfying that, you know, after all, a biochemical event can explain something. Um, but it also allowed us to f dig a little deeper and compare these different sites. So this slide may look boring, but to me at least, it's the most exciting slide of my entire talk. So please bear with me uh, to go through these um, th th through this data. Oh, sorry, this actually is kind of boring. The next, <laughs> the next slide, the next slide looks similar though. <laughs> Because this is essentially uh, a quantification of what, of what I just showed you, uh, uh, the average plots here um, of the heat maps, or the heat maps I just showed you, and it's the average plots here now that the you know, it, it AS1-enriched sites are opening up and the, uh, in AS1 reprogramming, and the MyOD-enriched sites specifically open up in MyOD reprogramming. This is the slide I was talking about. <laughs> Looks even more boring, doesn't it? <laughs> so up here, we have the AS1-enriched sites. Here the co-bound, and here the um, MyOD-enriched sites. On, uh, in this column here, it shows you what uh, type of motifs we find uh, under these uh, sites. And this here shows you the significance, and this here shows you the um, 
um, the, the occupants, how, how many of these sites actually have that given motif. Okay. So when we now focus on the AC1 sites, we pretty much only find BHLH e-boxes, right? And, and AC1 type motifs there. And the significance is very, very high. And it's a lot, you know, in some cases, you know, over 90% of the sites that are, you know, AC1 enriched that carry um, uh, these sites. When you now look at the MyOD enriched sites, the situation is very different. First of all, the significance drops quite substantially. And now, in addition to e-box motifs, we find other types of motifs, in particular a homebox motif, co-enriched to somewhat similarly significant levels. And when we look about the distribution or the fraction of the sites, it's actually not that many sites that even have an e-box under these MyOD preferred sites. And to some degree, even a greater en enrichment of these, uh, these homeobox uh, uh, motifs. Before I you know, sort of try to explain this to you, let me just continue here. We also looked at all possible um, e-boxes. So the two base pairs in the middle are, um, are interchangeable. So we have, that's why you have 16 possible e-boxes. And this here is the distribution of the three um, you know, groups of target sites. MyOD, middle, or uh, common, or um, AS1 enriched. And as you can see, it's the exact same e-box, the CG-type e-box, that um, is the best binding uh, site for both MyOD and AS1. Um, but when you look um, at the frequency, AS1 is much, much more um, present than MyOD. So we took then this best binder, so to say, the GC-type e-box, and, uh, and um, plotted the number of these type of e-boxes in these uh, three different groups. And as you can see, um, there is actually oftentimes many more than one e-boxes at the AS1 preferred sites, but taken together, you know, at least one in almost all of them. But when you look at MyOD, about half of the sites don't even have the best um, affinity binding site. And you know, there's, what is it, like 30 or so percent that have only one and very few more than one. And that cannot be just explained because, you know, the, on average, the, um, the groups have different lengths, the peaks have different sizes, because the AS1 uh, peaks actually tend to be somewhat smaller. Right? It's not, it cannot be statistically explained to have more of these motifs just because of the length of the, of the peaks. So the reason why I got so excited about this is because this suggests a potential mechanism how a pioneer factor can find its proper targets. I told you earlier that ACR1 is this amazing on-target pioneer factor, sort of can seemingly ignore the chromatin configuration and just goes in, activates its neuron program, right? So for the longest time, I and many other people, I think in the field, have thought, well, these pioneer factors must have some special domain. Right, there must be some sort of pioneer factor property built into the sequence. Hopefully that we at some point can identify and put onto other transcription factors and make them pioneer factors. And these data suggest otherwise. These data suggest that pioneer factors are actually kind of stupid. In a sense, all ACE1 is able to do is finding the epochs. It can find the epochs really, really well much better than 
MyOD, for example. But that's all it can do. It doesn't seem to be able to confuse or affect it much by other protein-protein interactions. May not listen much to where other transcription factors are going. You have to remind yourself that there's many, many transcription factors being present at a given time point in any cell. So this chromatin, these enhancers, they're full of a lot of different transcription factors. And you could easily imagine that in this enhancer milieu, it's not only the transcription factor, the protein DNA interaction that is maybe most dominant in most cases, there's a lot of possibilities for the transcription factors to interact on the protein-protein level. And as I just showed you, half of the MyOD preferred targets um, where, where MyOD is physically present, um, there's not even uh, EBOX there. It, it, cannot, it cannot bind the DNA at these places. It must be these interactions or this binding must be primarily driven by protein-protein interactions with presumably to some degree, the chromatin, I guess, in the in the uh, tighter sense, but in the in the wider sense, with other sequence-specific transcription factors, such as perhaps a homeobox um, uh, transcription factor that is that is uh, meant to actually, actually binds the DNA there and can sort of recruit myot to these sites. So, in theory, you can turn any tr an ordinary transcription factor into such an amazing on-target pioneer factor, but just. Uh, wiping out or de deleting all the protein-protein interactions that would um, uh, be there for interacting with other sequence-specific transcription factors, and maybe to some degree also the chromatin. So it could be a very simple explanation um, for a very complicated process. Did anybody, everybody get that? Yeah. Um, yes, we have some you know, further evidence, but those are hard experiments or, uh, fun experiments, but sort of hard to uh, make clear conclusions. But we also played around with the uh, domains between MyOD and uh, ASA1. And it uh, turns out that MyOD is, of course, a very well-studied uh, protein, that there is actually a homobox uh, factor known, PBX1, that is known to be important for, my, for MyOD function. And it, it's actually the interaction domains has been mapped to three, I believe, uh, amino acids, and two of them are in the C-terminal domain. And we found that um, we can actually turn MyOD into a proneuronal factor by just exchanging the basic domain, which is the DNA binding domain. So probably DNA affinity is important after all. Uh, but also when we then also co-exchange the C-terminus, which is just, I think, 30 amino acids or so of, the, of, of ASA1 uh, with, with MyOD. So that at least is compatible with this idea that I just tried to um, um, bring closer to your attention, that um, we essentially can convert you know, MyOD into a pro-neural factor by um, primarily by doing two things, increasing the affinity to its proper um, DNA binding domain, but also by eliminating or at least changing the protein-protein interaction domain, interaction domain with other sequence-specific transcription factors. And um, not surprisingly, um, it, it fits that the, uh, this chimera construct now has a much more similar binding um, to ASA1 than to MyOD. All right, so this we found quite interesting, um, but it had one more um, potential consequence, which is I showed you that ASA1 is this very strong neuronal in inducer, but it also has 
the ability to low levels at least to also induce a muscle program, right, as I just showed you, if it's there alone. In a normal reprogramming, we don't have to worry about it because we co-express mid one leg, which takes care of the muscle program. So that's why we have this you know, beautifully um, non-confused uh, neurons um, that we reprogram with the two factors. But then we thought perhaps something similar can happen with MyoD as well. It's a well-known, you know, strong inducer of the muscle lineage, but perhaps, given all its similarities, perhaps it can also somewhat inefficiently induce a neural program. And perhaps you can sort of change the balance of these two sort of sets of target genes by taking MyoD and now co-express mid one leg. Because mid one leg, as I told you, very clearly doesn't touch the neural program, but it very efficiently blocks the muscle program. So what would happen if we co-express those two factors? Can we then turn MyoD into a pro-neuronal factor? And the answer is, as you can guess, because I showed you already the schematic, it worked. So those are not the most beautiful neurons I have ever made, completely admitted. But we were really stunned to see that you actually get some neurons. So just as, as a re reference here, uh, on the left, you see ace one alone or a one with mid one leg, and we get this really amazing, complex-looking uh, neurons with high efficiencies. MyoD alone rarely induces like a TH1-positive cell, but with mid one leg now, first of all, we seem to completely eliminate the, the induction of Desmin and other muscle markers. So it's very, very few muscle cells being made. And now we see this kind of cool-looking, not quite mature, but still clearly neuronal-looking uh, cells made from MyoD. And when we patch from these cells, they even have a fairly narrow um, action potential. Um, you know, it's, it's too few cells and you know, not great cells. They won't have synapses, so we can't, you can't assess that function. But it's intriguing to see that we can make this type of cells with MyoD and mid one together. All right. Um, I'm at the end. I, this slide always reminds me that uh, I'm so happy to uh, be a scientist and leading a group of uh, amazing people. We are having fun not only with our science, but also privately in the lab, as you can see. Um, um, I just want to also mention some names. I think I mentioned Moritz already, who was really in charge of the Bit One Lake project, but he also teamed up with a GNE, a student in the lab. Um, uh, who worked on the MyoD ASMON comparison, and Jean and Koji uh, did this blood ion project. A lot of the ATAC-seq stuff was done in collaboration with, with Howard Cheng. Thank you very much for your attention, and if you have any questions, I'm happy to take them. Thanks so much. Great talk. Um, Thank you. So, following on this DNA binding factor specificity, so um, we know that FOXA1, for example, was a classical one, and it found to bind the entire motif, and then Kenzarit's another, so that uh, OCT4 and SOX2, for example, they buy the partial exactly. nucleosome motif, which actually much broader than their final sort of set of binding sites. So yeah. maybe I miss it, but what with an ASL1? Does it actually bind? You show the uh, uh, DN5 transposition open chromatin, but so does that actually ASL find binds its original set of sites and, and then sits yes. there, or it's actually much broader and then it's yeah. condensed to what it should be? Thank you for that question. We, we are amazed by, by these data. So Kenzarit and also Catherine Platt up in a little further north of Southern California, in Los Angeles, I guess, <laughs> um, showed very elegantly uh, that OCT4 is also a pioneer factor based on the definition that it can access closed chromatin. 
when you don't look and compare the binding sites two days after infections in fibroblast and where OCT4 is bound in ES cells, it's a very different binding pattern. So it's more like our brain 2 factor, very much context dependent. So it can access close chromatin, but it's, if you want to say, the, the wrong sites. And Catherine's paper suggests that it's actually mostly fibroblast enhancers where OCT4 is going, and she thinks that might be a reason why the fibroblast program is shut down. And so OCT4 is responsible to actually shut down the fibroblast program first, and then at the later phase of reprogramming, then induces the pluripotency program. So the binding is very different of OCT4 in the early and, and late phases. of, um, And that's completely different for our ASA1. It goes right in and stays there and activates the neural program. And uh, I actually asked Ken, uh, after he published this paper with this half, which is mechanistically very interesting, right? It looks like maybe there's just you know three of the six base pairs are accessible for a pioneer factor, so that tries to grab on. But you know, if it's the wrong motif, what, what do you need the pioneer factor there for, right? I mean, I guess it has some function, but it's, it doesn't. It's not the proper target program, right? So there's a, there seems to be a fundamental difference between most of the described pioneer factors and AC1. So yes. have neuronal genes evolved to have multiple e-boxes that ACL1 can bind to of the GC type? Yes, I guess in principle, um, BHLH factors uh, can bind all 16 possible e-boxes. But as I showed you, there is a clear preference of this CG type e-box for ACL1 and MyOD. And do you know anything about the spacing of those e-boxes? Is there some sort of DNA structure or uh, hmm. oligomerization of ASCL1 that, for, for instance, yeah. from, some, from the C-terminus or wherever that drives it? Yeah, uh, we, we haven't looked at the, um, the distribution of the, of the epochs. I told you that there's oftentimes more than one, actually in most cases for ASCL1, actually more than one epoch is there. So it seems to be a cluster of e-boxes, which could maybe explain, you know, why there are so many e-boxes in the genome, why, why doesn't ASO bind everywhere? It may go, you know, those sites are have like maybe three, right, or four uh, e-boxes, and that's why if it's primarily, if ASO is primarily driven by the DNA interactions and less by the protein interactions, that's maybe the highest affinity site where it goes. But that's just a hypothesis. Well, affinity is always helped by multiple sites, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. My question is actually similar in nature in that, you know, Alex Meiser for FOXA, which has also been described for as a pioneer, yep. um, he has shown that when you infect fibroblasts, I believe he used too, with FOXA, that there's sort of these low affinity sites and actually scans sort of all its possible binding motifs. And then, you know, some evolve to be sort of these more high affinity sites doing reprogramming over time. And the idea is then that that sort of facilitated by cooperative binding. And you describe here that ALC1 essentially all goes to these neuronal sites when you sort of lower your threshold. Do you actually also see that maybe it goes to non-neuronal other sites? And then um, is that maybe that it sort of becomes, binding becomes enhanced because it maybe oligo, it, it homodimerizes and it's almost cooperativity with itself and that's why it's reinforced at these neuronal sites. Hmm. Yeah, interesting idea. First of all, I would like to make clear that I was a little bit painting black and white, right? Just to make the point a little clearer. But of course, you know, 
it will not be that extreme. And of course, it will be somewhat context-dependent and dependent on other sequence music transcription factors and so forth. Um, just to make it a little clear, right? I was trying to make sure. You know, biology is always great, never black and white. Um, to, yeah, I'm, so first of all, we know that ACE1 is usually not homodimerizing. So it's, it's, it's usually it takes a constitutively expressed E protein uh, to bind. So that's why some sort of feed-forward mechanism like you describe, I'm not sure we could, could explain that easily in this. I, I think it looks like the data more compatible with this idea that sort of the sort of simply the highest affinity sites that, um, that ASM is, is going to. We also try to do some imaging now, single molecule tracking and so forth to see uh, look at the dynamics. Maybe there's differences between these different types of transcription factors. Maybe we can learn something uh, that way. A beautiful talk. Uh, I'm just wondering, uh, in principle, when cell change fate establish a new identity, uh, there are all kind of reorganization of the genome happens, right? Sure. And now the question is that this endogenous gene, all uh, three of them or many others, how many things become dispensable after initial reprogramming? So in the other word, you don't need the consistent right. uh, expression of a foreign uh, exogenous gene and then right. replaced by the internal program of endogenous gene. So right. when this has happened, which one is persistently required or none of them? Yeah, so we have looked at that question. And um, as you said, uh, as in a, you would expect from a proper reprogrammed cell, the, uh, these ion cells are not dependent on the exogenous expression of the viruses anymore or, or the transgenes, whatever method you use to. Uh, oh, one window, one month, one week, one month? Um, so, you know, we did a titration. And essentially, the shorter you give uh, doxycycline, the fewer cells you make. Uh, I think we could make some neurons as, as little as maybe three or so days of doxycycline. It was called very inefficient. So it depends, you know, what efficiency you want. <laughs> then I can give you an exact uh, time of how long the transcription factor are needed. But it's very clear that the neurons that are made, independent of the efficiency, uh, they are not dependent on the, on the transgenes. And in case of IPS reprogramming, the solution is very easy because the reprogramming factors, you know, OCT4 and so forth, they are being induced. Um, to the endogenous OCT4 takes, takes simply over, and that's why you don't need OCT4 anymore, or SOX2 and so forth. That is somewhat different in our case because ACE1 during normal development is only transiently induced, is expressed right at the transition when the neuroprogenitor cells have the last cell division and uh, become differentiated neurons, or these bipotent TBR2-positive cells. And then it's turned off. But there's a lot of other BHLH factors uh, in, in the genome, and there are some, in particular some neuro-D family members, that then are being induced. So it's probably a little bit more complicated in, in terms of neuronal formation than, than pluripotent cells, that there's more transcription factors on, you know, it's a, it's a sort of different related program probably that is being induced. It's not the exact same identity of the transcription factors that we use to reprogram. But one leg, on the other hand, stays on. So it's, it's endogenous uh, transcript and, and protein is being induced and, and stays on uh, and takes over. Okay, if you want more philosophy, come. Yes, yes. I'm happy to try to philosophize more later on. Thank you.